0: Good morning, Restore. Good morning. Happy post-Easter uh, Sunday. Uh, I'm actually excited. We filled the, the seats this morning. I told everybody, I was like, it's going to be empty. I don't know what it is. Like, People were like, I went to Easter Sunday. Now I'm going to take this week off. I'm like, but it's the same Sunday as every Sunday, every week of the year. But anyway, um, excited to see all of you this morning. Uh, we're going to be jumping into a new series that I'm particularly excited about. I don't know you guys tease me and say that I always say that about every series that we're in. But really, like, I'd rather be excited about what we're teaching uh, than be like, I'm really not looking forward to these next six weeks. I hope you guys aren't either. Um, Because we're going to be exploring resurrection. Okay, like the power of the resurrection, like what is the resurrection? Okay, so if I were to ask you, uh, what does the resurrection mean? Even though it is sort of the pinnacle of the Christian faith, of Christian hope, if I were to ask you to articulate or, or define why it was significant, why it mattered, like why what it defines for you as a Christian, could you? Right. So, so it's common for us to, say, especially this time of year on Easter, to say things like Jesus died for our sins. He was the sacrifice for our sins. Okay, that's absolutely appropriate language. I'm not saying that we don't say that. Um, But what I'm really suggesting is that sometimes when we say it that way, we begin to think that the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, was what was all that was being accomplished. He died for my sins, therefore I'm forgiven, therefore I go to heaven. But if he died for your sins, then why was resurrection even necessary? So if you you look at your Old Testament, when your Old Testament speaks of of, uh, offering sin sacrifices to God, right, going to the temple uh, and sacrificing an animal uh, that would basically act or serve as payment for your sins, those sins were then forgiven, but the animal was never required to be raised from the dead. The transaction was over. And so resurrection means something more than just my sins have been paid for. We'll talk about this over the next six weeks, um, but what I want to do is just in our minds this morning, create some curiosity for us of why is resurrection actually significant? Uh, and then two, what does that actually mean for me? Like, does, How does it change my hope? Because Paul, even in the midst of his worst, like lowest points in ministry, will say, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, all of this is worthless. I'm wasting my time. You're wasting your time. None of this matters. He uses the words like, we ought to be pitied. Like, you ought to feel sorry for me if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And so for Paul, the resurrection is, played a central role in understanding his faith as a Christian. Like, but it was more than just like intellectually, like theologically, I get what God did there. I didn't expect that, but I see it now. It was when my life is in shambles, I lean towards this. I hold to this. I cling to this. When I'm struggling to make sense of my life, I cling to this. I hold to this. When nothing goes the way I want in life or the way that I think it should in life, I cling to this. This provides something just more than an intellectual understanding. It was a foundation at which Paul built and endured his life. So this morning, uh, we're going to be in a couple of different texts all throughout your New Testament. Um, But this morning in particular, we're going to start in the Gospel of John. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 20. The words will be behind me on the screen Um, I don't ordinarily I read the whole text first and then I make it really confusing for you guys for the next 30 minutes. I'm like, forgive me, like I am trying to get better at that. So I'm actually not going to just read the text and then and then yap at you all for 30 minutes. I'm actually going to kind of walk us through the text as we go through the text uh, this morning. Um, But we're going to be in John chapter 20. The words will be behind me on the screen. Uh, And this is John's account. Of the resurrection. So, so we read these kinds of accounts on Easter, uh, which is great. Like we do this, pastors do this every Sunday, uh, every Easter Sunday. We, we talk about resurrection, but then usually we don't really dive into it much the rest of the year. And I think this kind of leaves us asking, like, wait, what what is the significance here? What does this matter? So this, over the next six weeks, we're going to actually dive into some of these accounts of the resurrection. What were some of the New Testament writers really trying to have us cling to or hold on to uh, with resurrection? Uh, This is John's account of the resurrection, uh, which John was, uh, so there's four gospels, if if you're familiar with that, uh, that kind of give the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's gospel was the last one written. We think he was the youngest when Jesus was alive, probably around just 15. Uh, And his gospel is the last that was written out of the four, which means there was time for him to actually really think about, wrestle with, uh, and kind of grasp what happened uh, at the crucifixion and at the resurrection. So John's account of the resurrection, in particular, shares a story, like he's he's communicating uh, some really deep truths that I'm going to walk us through this morning, hopefully, um, and try my best to not make them super confusing. Uh, so John will start by saying this, early on the first day of the week, okay, I'm going to stop us right there, and I know what you're thinking, like if you stop this often, uh <laughs> We're never getting through this. Uh, hold on. Uh, I'm not going to stop at every verse, but I'm going to stop right there. So John will use this phrase the first day of the week several times in his account of, this, of, this, of the resurrection. Uh, usually, uh, when that happens, the author's communicating something. Right? You remember from your lit classes in high school or college, right? When, when a phrase kind of shows up over and over and over again, uh, it's communicating something. John's trying to say on the first day something is happening here. So what is it? He'll say it several times uh, in his gospel. Here's what he's here's what he's doing. Uh, he's comparing. So when was the last time you actually heard language around like days? It was Genesis. On the first day God created this. On the second day God created that. On the third day God created this. What John is doing for his Particularly, Jewish readers here, as he's trying to put something in their mind, this is a day of new creation. He'll see it as the eighth day of creation. We'll talk a little bit about this later. But what John is, is trying to get us to grasp or hold on to here is God is creating again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, He created this garden in which he, along with humanity, were to thrive, both with one another and with him, in his presence and in the loving presence of one another. But sin and human rebellion broke that. So John is saying, with the act of resurrection, new creation has started. On the first day, God has created or done something new. He's begun a new creation, Paul will pick up on this language in your New Testament when he says, "I am a new creation." But the first thing that John wants us to do here uh, is see that Jesus is like the resurrection of Jesus is marking something new. It wasn't just putting away uh, and forgiving sins, although that was part of all of that. We'll unpack and understand that a little bit more over the next six weeks. But he's also wanting us to see there is hope; something new has started. On the first day, this is on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So think about this. Who's who's Mary Magdalene? right? So some some of you have uh, incorrectly heard that she was uh, a prostitute. Nowhere in any of your four gospels is that actually the case. Uh, We do know that Mary uh, was saved from seven demons that Jesus cast out of her. So, what is it? So, I want to just like, for a second, if we can, like, put ourselves in Mary's shoes. Here's this man who has cast out seven demons from you these things, these deep ailments, these deep psychological and emotional and spiritual chaos inside of you. And he's healed you. We know that she was probably one of the people who financed Jesus' ministry. So she sells and everything that she has, most likely, and follows him and finances him. She's followed him. He's this one who has come and saved her. Not just from her sins, but from some of this deep inside turmoil that she had experienced. That inevitably had ostracized her from the world around her and she's gone looking for her Jesus verse 2 so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples the one who Jesus loved and said they have taken away the lord out of the tomb and we don't know where we they have put him so peter and the other disciples started for the tomb both were running but the other disciple outran peter and reached the tomb First, that's John's way of saying I beat Peter to the tomb. I was faster. Um, they were they were most likely rivals. We kind of see that in the Gospels. I love some of the, like the human nature of it. John is young uh, and thoughtful and poetic, right? His book is the most poetic out of the four. Peter was like a foot in the mouth kind of guy, right? So like it just they were opposite ends of the spectrum. At a party, they wouldn't have like really wanted to talk to one another, and so they kind of have this constant rivalry even in their Gospels. But he says, uh, I, I beat Peter to the tomb. he saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus was to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Okay, so, so something interesting happens here. We, we, we see that uh, he, the disciple uh, John reaches the tomb, goes inside, and believes. Uh, verse 8. We don't actually really know what it was that he believed at this moment. It does, the text doesn't tell us. It just says that he believed. Maybe she, he believed, finally that the tomb was in fact empty, that someone had in fact had taken the body. We don't actually know, but what we do know is there's this spark of curiosity that starts in John. Maybe this is true. So because they had been hearing for years with Jesus that he was, in fact, going to be crucified and then raised from the dead. It's not like he hadn't cued them in on what was happening, and yet over and over and over they miss it supposing most of what Jesus was saying uh, as spiritual, like spiritual metaphors. Jesus is dying, and then he's going to be raised back up, kind of like a spiritual uh, reality of some kind. He's teaching us something spiritual, and if we can get spiritual enough and religious enough, uh, like we can kind of grasp all of it, and then all of a sudden there's a physical aspect to the resurrection. We'll talk about this more over the next couple of weeks, but what this tells us or what begins to show us is that the physical reality, our life, and the world around us matter. This is why, so back when I asked you, like, why did resurrection, why was it significant? Why is that important? This is, because, this is one of the reasons why. It is bringing an emphasis or a value uh, into the physical world. This is why as a church we talk about racial injustice, This is why the world around you matters. It wasn't just so that they could be forgiven and then go to heaven someday, kind of a spiritual uh, ascension into heaven. The physical world around them matters. Jesus comes back with a physical body, flesh and blood, like blood in his veins, neurons in his brain. And so we'll talk about this over the, I'm I'm general I'm just kind of setting us up for what will be over the next 6 weeks but I'm trying to help us like really ask in our mind why is resurrection happening? Well, one of the things that we know about resurrection is we begin to see this physical reality, our physical lives matter. This is why Paul will see a continuation of his life that he's living now with what comes next, not as two separate things. Paul sees eternity as now. Your eternity starts now. You're not waiting for heaven someday. Like, i got a duck and cover here. Let's just get through it so we can get to the good stuff. What, cre- what resurrection begins to show us is that the physical here and now matters. And it is very much connected to eternity now. Your Bible will use all kinds of metaphors, like a new heaven and a new earth being joined together. We often think uh, of things as just kind of purely spiritual. And I'm afraid when we do that, we miss both the significance and the beauty of what's happening here. We also can inadvertently begin to devalue our world because everything becomes about where's the spiritual journey leading? It's out there somewhere. I don't understand it, but that's where I'm going. That's where I've got to get to. And when Jesus comes back with a physical body, is raised with a physical body, it begins to reverse some of the things that they had been thinking were just purely spiritual And begins to uh, show them the physical actually matters so so Mary uh, starting in verse 11 now Mary stood outside the tomb crying and as she wept she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been one at the head and the other at the foot they asked her Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I will get him okay so a couple of things here one um i actually think you just witnessed a little humor uh from god here uh she she's crying jesus walks up and says why are you crying he knows why she's crying who are you looking for he knows who she's looking for there's this almost playfulness of like i'm gonna show you mary hang on here i am and as you can imagine Mary's grief in this moment, here's this person who she had set her life right, who's now, like everything has happened opposite of what she thought. And in this moment, there's about to be a great reversal. Okay, so I want you to think for a second. John's keeps telling us, I'm in a garden, I'm in a garden, I'm in a garden. He does this intentionally, he does this for the last couple of chapters. When was the last time that humanity was in a garden with God? The last time humanity was in the garden from God, God went looking for them and they hid. Now they're looking for God and He shows them where He is. It's cueing us that a great reversal has just started. Okay, so so, so this is where um, I uh, I want us to not sell ourselves sell ourselves short. When when we think of of the love that God has for us and the life that He has for us, we tend to think purely as, as sort of more like accommodating or tolerating. He forgives me and puts up with me until I can hopefully make the cut and get into heaven. But what John's painting this picture of creation is things are reversing now. Humanity rebelled against God and hid from Him in a garden. Now, after the crucifixion, God's in a garden with humanity once again, and they're searching for him. Your life, the love that God has for you, is so much more than just the forgiveness of your sins. I'm not saying it doesn't include the forgiveness of your sins. Don't hear me say what I'm not saying this morning. But there's an intention of reversal. It's not just to forgive you of your sins. It's to begin to put back the brokenness that led you to those sins in the first place. It's not just like a, like a let's tolerate the bad things you do and not punish you for them. It's let's start begin healing the parts of you that have felt broken that makes you long for them in the first place. Okay, so, so a, as a pastor, right, um, I, I do hear um, pretty regularly from some of you what you think it'll be like to meet Jesus someday. And can I just say that none of the accounts that I've ever heard ever sound anything like this. Most of them are, are littered with shame, and will he let me in? What's it going to look like? And here, all of a sudden, there's a little bit of this playfulness, this tenderness. He doesn't show up and be like, I told you guys, why haven't you figured it out by now? Where are the rest of the disciples? Like, Like, there's not, like, give me an explanation. There's tenderness and playfulness. And a clinging, as we'll see too in a minute. But I just I want to stop here and say for a second that uh, very much what we think that first interaction will be like when we meet him uh, characterizes so much of our spiritual life. I've shared this before with some of you, um, uh, but one of my biggest struggles is this: it's this shame. It's this like when I picture meeting him someday, like most of the time it's filled with anxiety. Here's all the things you did wrong. Here's all the ways you weren't a good pastor. Here's all the thing, like here's all the account of the way that your sin has affected, hurt, damaged, all of this, right? Like I tend to think of that first interaction as like this giving of an account weighed by shame and guilt. And I remember the very first time that I began to entertain the idea that there might be actual love and affection, like real tenderness there when I meet him. Begin to change things for me. But I go back and forth. What's it really going to be like when I see him? How's he really going to accept or receive me? But how we picture that moment, how you picture that moment, defines more for your spiritual life than you realize it does. This is why so many of us who really struggle with feeling like we are loved and accepted by God, most of the time our, our view of that first interaction we have with him is one based on shame. Based on condemnation. But as we read, what happens next is uh, Jesus says to her, Mary, he speaks her name. She turns towards him and cries out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. It really means my teacher. My teacher. You're mine. Okay, so as I said here, there's an invitation here. John's painting an invitation. He's not just saying, Mary got this, but the rest of you are out of luck. Like it's going to be a lot worse for you. He's painting this picture. There's an invitation for us here to begin to consider what it will be like to actually meet Jesus, to be embraced by him. And there's this clinging, right? She clings to him. And so if I look at my own life and I look at um, all the ways that I feel defeated by me, right? all, the ways, all the ways that I wish I could change but can't, all the struggles that I have but don't go away, all the compulsions I have that don't get, seem to get fixed. right? If you look at your life, all the shame that you carry that never seems to go away, that anxiety that you carry that doesn't seem to get fixed, all these rough parts of us that we sometimes feel defeated by, unable to see changed. John is inviting us here to begin picturing that change as happening in the embrace of Jesus. Those rough edges that don't seem to work themselves out no matter how much you try. John's inviting us to begin to see new creation as a great reversal that starts with this clinging to Jesus. starting in verse 9 and moving on in verse 19. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 18. Uh, sorry, verse 19. And then on that evening, John says again of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, please, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. For if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay, so um, much debate has happened around these two words, depending on your background, Catholic uh, how, how you might have seen uh, priest and confession and all of this, right? There's this. Way, was that saying that, like, literally, if, I don't know, you guys come after the service, and you're like, hey, this is what I did this week. I'm like, you're not forgiven. Does that mean, like, you're not? Right? Like, what, it, what is it, like, that he's doing here? Uh, so I, I want to say one thing, one. I don't think that, uh, I think it's a mistake to interpret these words literal to where, like, each of us holds the power uh, to forgive sins, because Jesus makes that clear, only God forgives sins, uh, but here's, what I, here's, here's the language that he's using here. It's temple language. Okay, where, where was the temple? The temple had two primary functions. It had a bunch, but there were two primary ones, I would say. One, it was the presence of God. It was where you would go to be in the presence of God. Two, it was where you would go to be forgiven of sins. Right, you would bring your sacrifice to the temple, the priest would sacrifice, and you would be forgiven. You would leave out of the presence of God uh, and go about your day. It's temple language. What Jesus has just said to his disciples is, You are now the temple. Okay, so I know that sometimes uh, none of you guys ever do this. Uh, I get written off as sort of like uh, kumbaya, especially when I say things like, You are the loving presence of the living God to one another, or like God is a friend who speaks to us through our friends. Like, I know it sounds like, uh, like I just, like those are things I came up with, but they're deeply rooted uh, in the theology and the text here. Jesus is just saying, You are the loving, living presence. That was a bird. I think he's okay. Uh, um, we can edit that out of the live stream, right? Like <laughs> animal cruelty. That's, that wasn't our intention. Um, what Jesus is really saying is here is, You are now my presence to the world. You are now the temple, right? This is this breathing on him which is this, like giving of the Holy Spirit. They are now the loving presence of the living God for the people around them. They will know and experience and encounter God through them. This is a gifting of the Spirit. And so when we, when we think of, of all of the clinging that's happened in this text, Mary clinging to Jesus, Jesus showing up to the disciples and breathing on Him, What we're beginning to see is a great reversal, an invitation for deep change that begins to reverse not just our tendency, like not just forgive us, but then begin reverse the things that we cling to that make us so broken to begin with. And the last we see Jesus empowering the disciples. Right? To Mary, he says, go and tell, go and preach. To the disciples, he says, go and forgive. He's saying, go be my presence in the world now. There's something deep, theolo- deeply theological and hopeful that's happening in the first resurrection. And so f- for us as a church, um, like we, we work hard on Sundays. We work hard with our preaching. We work hard with our worship. We work hard with kids. But, but we're really, like, at the end of the day... Um, what I pray for, what I feel most anxious for is are we are we being in the loving presence of God towards one another? Like, this is how you define a community. This is how God empowers community. This is what resurrection means for us. We have a church that lives into this. Let me pray for us, and we'll close this morning. And Father, i um got to admit how... Um, short I am when it comes to this kind of life that you're calling. I spend most of my life um, imagining how shameful or regretful it will be to encounter you. I spend most of my life still trying to work out rough edges. i am got to admit how difficult it is to actually change to see deep change, reversal, transformation. So Father, would you help me? Would you have mercy on me? Would you have mercy on us as a church? Father, as we begin to see ourselves uh, as part of the resurrection story, um, would you help us? We need you. Help us to cling to you. We love you and just show us how to love one another. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen.